Again, our passage is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. It reads like this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from Him fullness we have all received, Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. LeBron James is a professional basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. About 10 years ago, when LeBron rose to basketball stardom, his company, Nike, started a, market, a marketing campaign to honor LeBron called Witness. Nike wanted to honor LeBron's tremendous basketball performance and skill and ability, and they wanted to honor him and his fans all around the world, as they said, who were witnessing his great skill on the court. Nike made a poster with LeBron James on it with the words, We are all witnesses. If there was ever anyone in the history of the world who did a good job of playing the role of witness well, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a special calling on his life, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother Elizabeth's womb. He taught and preached about the kingdom of God. He unapologetically pointed his audience to Jesus, commanding them, encouraging them to turn from their sin and believe in Christ. He was a faithful man, but he wasn't a flashy man. He ate locusts. His, his clothes were made of camel's hair. He ate wild honey. There were many people who didn't like John or didn't look up to him, but Jesus recognized the greatness of John the Baptist. In fact, in one place in Scripture, Jesus says that of all the men born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Yet in this passage here, John the Baptist says that Jesus ranks before him. So we see that Jesus is superior to John, but John is the witness for Christ. 
Most of us struggle to be a witness for Christ despite our personal faith in him. Questions about what to say and how to say them come to our mind. Perhaps we struggle with people-pleasing and we care more about what other people think than what God thinks. This is why we need a fresh reminder of the role of John the Baptist and the activity of Jesus for all those who would believe in him. And in this passage, we see that John is the witness to the word and the word is Jesus who comes to dwell with his people. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're told that John the Baptist was sent from God. He's not just some ordinary, regular guy who's going out and preaching and teaching on his own, although that's totally acceptable as long as the message aligns with Christianity. No, no, he's specifically sent by God. This is strong language. This puts him on the same playing field as prophets like Moses and other prophets of the Old Testament who were chosen, authorized, commissioned, empowered, to complete a specific task on God's behalf. And we learned about his task in verse 7, which says, He, that is John the Baptist, came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John's task is to bear witness about the light, and the light is Jesus, who's coming down. Light is a metaphorical language. As we mentioned last week, it exposes evil, it exposes sinfulness, it exposes the darkness. And darkness is anyone who's living in such a way that doesn't align with the God of the Bible. And Jesus comes to gently and humbly expose the sin, but not only to do that, to show the people to whom he ministered to the right way to live. He was the light, and John the Baptist was the witness to the light. The word witness appears 130 times in the Gospel of John, more than any other book of the Bible. It's a common theme in John's Gospel that he's writing from an evangelistic standpoint and encouraging his audience for those who have believed in Jesus and trusted in Jesus to witness on his behalf. That word witness has courtroom terminology, and perhaps your mind has been thinking about courtroom activity and so forth. Uh, essentially, in simplest terms, it means someone who is, has knowledge of someone or a situation and they could testify about the situation. Biblically speaking, witnessing about Christ is accurately presenting Christ to others who do not know him in a saving way. I was recently watching a documentary about a former NFL football player who is really troubled, tremendous talent on the football field, but was, had a dark past. He had a rough childhood that was really, really difficult for him, and he, you might say, had a lot of childhood wounds and was not able to shake some of those wounds off. And as a result, there was anger and rage and shame and guilt and all these things, and he became so angry that he started to take it out on other people so much so that he went so far as to take the lives of other people. And as I watched this documentary, they were showing footage from court, and in the courtroom there were various witnesses who came forward to speak on behalf of this situation. Some people said he was innocent. Most said that he was guilty. 
But either way, a, a witness, an accurate witness, was a powerful testimony to help the judge make the correct decision. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, you too are called to be a witness for Christ. This doesn't mean that you have to go through the Bible with everyone you know or invite all your Facebook friends to church or go through the storyline of Scripture with every single stranger you meet. But it does mean that for those that are personal relationships and personal connections, for those of you that know Christ, you are called to then, therefore, witness and be a light and share Christ with others who don't know Him. As one person says, found people, find people. We're all natural evangelists for the things we love, as one person says. When, when I go on Amazon, I often check the reviews first before buying a product. Perhaps you've seen reviews of, on Google or Yelp or another source. Oftentimes when people leave five-star reviews, no one tells them to do it. They do it because they love the product so much and they want other people to know about it. It's true with Jesus and following Jesus and knowing Jesus. The more we know him and worship him and understand him and grow deeper in him, the more we'll be able to have the courage to naturally tell other people who don't know him about Christ and what he's done. This past week I was at the orthodontist and my orthodontist was telling me that she's not going to be there next month. Me and all the junior high kids were there and she was telling me that Next month she won't be there because she's got the surgery coming up. And I began to talk to her about her surgery and what was going on. And she knows that I'm a pastor and I've built these relationships and friendships with these people there. And basically I just told her afterwards, hey, I'll be praying for you. I'll be thinking of you throughout this time. Is that bearing witness? No, not really. Is that evangelism? No. That's, that's not quite it because I didn't talk about Jesus and so forth, but I, I gave an element of my faith up. She knows about it, and hopefully this can open doors for more opportunities to spread the aroma of Christ. Oftentimes we get so concerned about what to say and how to say it when really we just need to put ourselves out there and see what God does with it and build momentum from there. Uh, it, it's okay to not know your Bible extremely well. It's okay to not have a seminary degree. It's okay to not have all the answers. But what's not okay is self-identifying as a Christian and never telling anyone about it. In addition to the role of John the Baptist, we see the activity of Jesus. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. If John is the structure of the lamp, then Jesus is the light bulb in the lamp. The lamp, John, makes room for the light, Jesus, to shine. And this light, John says, is coming to the world. When you say or think of the world, world you're probably thinking of universe. Here in this context and in most biblical contexts, world doesn't mean universe, but rather created people and actions that are opposed to the God of the Bible. 
We're told that Jesus has come to shine his light or be a light for these people that he created, people that he loves, people that he wants to serve. And yet many of them reject him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was rejected. This is a deliberate rejection of Christ and who he is by his own people. You could remember one place in Scripture where Jesus is in his own hometown preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God. And many start to listen and they say, who is this guy? Don't, don't we know him? Aren't his brothers and sisters here with us? You mean to tell me this Jesus from Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He's the one that the Old Testament points to, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Scripture says they took offense at him. Many people back then and many people today will reject the message of Jesus. But not, but not everyone. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of my favorite New Testament words is the word all. Here it says that anyone, all, anyone who receives Jesus, black or white, rich or poor, American or not, conservative or liberal, whoever you are, the Jesus' is perfect life, his death on the cross in your place for your sins, his resurrection from the dead, that is, that is open to you no matter what sins you've committed. John says that anyone who receives Jesus, God grants that person the right to become a child of God. Uh, receiving Jesus is the same thing as believing in Jesus. And last week we mentioned that believing in Jesus is not merely agreeing with your mind that God exists. Even demons believe that Jesus exists. Believing with your mind that God is real and he exists gets you nowhere. Besides, it, it, it removes your excuse to not believe in him. Instead, as we mentioned, believing in Jesus is welcoming Jesus and submitting to him as Lord and Savior. It's placing the entirety of your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not in what you can do or what you will do or what you have done, but what Christ has done on your behalf. And notice the progression in this verse. It says, uh, first you believe in Jesus, then God gives you the status of child of God. One minorly offensive thing about this passage is that not everyone in the world is a child of God. God loves all people in a general way, and God's grace is available to anyone and everyone, but only those who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior get the status as child of God. And John says that this doesn't happen because of 
blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man. In other words, that's religious language to say things like, uh, it doesn't happen because you grew up in a Christian family or because of your ethnicity or because you live in America. This receiving of Jesus and becoming a child of God doesn't, doesn't happen because of church attendance, although that's crucially important. It doesn't happen because you serve somewhere in church, although that's crucially important. It doesn't happen because you were born in a Christian family, although that's a tremendous blessing. But it happens because, it says, but of God. This shows that salvation or this belief in Jesus is of God. Just even this morning, I was reading in my quiet time in Exodus how Pharaoh's heart was hardened towards the Lord. If your heart has been softened toward the Lord, if you're, the fact that you're even in church this morning, if you're curious about Jesus, if you're interested in Jesus, or if you've been believing in Jesus, this, this is a work that God initiated on your behalf. He found you if you're a Christian. You didn't find him. He was never lost. So even your believing in Jesus is a gift from him. These last few verses, we've learned that some people will reject Jesus. Some people will receive Jesus. You could say I learned this the hard way when I was in undergraduate school. I was a pastoral intern at a church in a different part of Missouri. Didn't want to do this internship at all, but I was... They drug me into this church to be an intern there, I don't know, 19, 20 years old, and gave up my whole summer. And one of the things I did there was preach a sermon, my first sermon ever. It was on a text in Matthew, and uh, it probably wasn't the best example in the history of Christianity of preaching skill at the age of 19 or 20. But everything I said was theologically correct, it aligns with Christianity, aligns with the Bible, right? Just, just a quick 15 to 20 minute sermon, and you know, back then we had these things called CDs. I put it on a CD. I know some of you still use CDs. No one else uses CDs anymore, but some of you can still use them if you want. Right? They put it on a CD. I brought it home, and I played it for family and other people to hear it. And it just so happens that that day there were some people who were of a different religion. They, they don't believe in that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and so I just played it for them anyway. Perhaps they'd listen or learn something or grow, but... The opposite actually happened. They criticized the sermon. They made fun of it. And ultimately, halfway through, they, they were just saying, turn this off. First sermon ever, and it was met with complete rejection. In my own hometown. So I just kept chugging away, and got, by God's grace, I took on more leadership responsibilities at church, and led community groups and preached and so forth. And I was even the co-chaplain on my football team in college and got to speak at various prisons and events and conferences and so forth. And those were some of the sweetest days of my life. I look back with such joy at that time. And through a few of those other experiences, several people came to Christ. I baptized a few of them. Two of them now work on church staffs. When I consider that time of informal ministry, I'm a little perplexed, but I'm also encouraged at the same time. I'm perplexed because my message never changed. But the way my listeners responded did. 
Some received Jesus, but many rejected him. It's just a reminder as we try to be witnesses at home, at work, in natural places of life where you want to make disciples and be a witness for Christ, you're not going to always be met with 100% reception of your message. It didn't happen to John the Baptist. It didn't happen to Jesus, and it won't happen to us. Can it be that some of you are discouraged about witnessing because you've been faced with so much rejection over the years? Maybe you have a child who's far from God or a child who's running away from the Lord or someone at your work. You just know that if they just came to Christ, their life would be better and all this misery would end. But you've shared, you've tried, and you feel like, oh, I'm being rejected. It's not working. You could feel nervous, and believe me, I, I get nervous too, and it feels a little awkward sometimes. But the encouragement of this passage is that the results are in God's hands. God uses people. We're not robots. So we still share Christ and we still witness. But at the end of the day, we prayed, we presented Christ, we invited them to church, invited them to community group, oh, get, get them a Bible, go through the Bible with someone who doesn't know the Lord. You can go to sleep with a good conscience knowing that God saves whom he wants to save. Some will receive Christ. Others will reject him. We've learned that. We've learned the role of John the Baptist. Now we learn about Jesus who becomes flesh. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. Listen to the way the ESV Study Bible footnote talks about this verse. The author says this, This is the most amazing event in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy Son of God took on a human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time in one person. This is truly staggering. Jesus, fully God, keeps his divinity but adds to it humanity so he's fully God and fully man. Last week we learned that Jesus enjoyed fellowship with the other members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, but now he's, he's willing to leave heaven to come to earth to be tempted, to be tested, to be tried, but ultimately to give his life as a ransom on the cross for all those who would believe in him. And the word dwelt among us uh, can be translated tabernacled or pitched his tent. That John here is continuing his theme of using Old Testament language to make his point here in the Gospel of John. In the Old Testament, God would meet with the Israelites in a, temp in a temple or a tabernacle. But no more. Instead of going to a tabernacle to meet with God, God is coming down to meet with you. Personally. The temple and the tabernacle were Old Testament symbols to point to Christ to come 
And now he has come. He's become flesh, which means he took on human nature. He became a man while keeping his divinity. Other places in the New Testament talk about the temple being the church or your temple being your body. Now, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has sealed you permanently and God is with you literally everywhere you go. But also the temple, the new temple is the church where God's people meet on Sunday mornings for the Lord's Supper and worship and the preaching of the Word of God. And even when it doesn't feel like it, God is moving and working on our hearts and helping us to grow through the preaching of the Word. That's why it's detrimental to regularly skip church. And it's essential to make the Sunday morning a priority. Because when we do the Word, Jesus, that himself, he meets with us and strengthens his people and helps us to grow even when we don't feel like it. And in verse 15, John says that Jesus ranks before him, that Jesus is superior to him. Even though John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, he was quick to humble himself and recognize himself as merely a servant who would point to Christ. In the Old Testament, those who were born first often were ranked more superior than those who were younger than them. But here John reverses the order and says, no, 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 no. I'm just a witness. I'm just a servant to Jesus, who is the Savior. And John, the, John the Apostle continues with Old Testament connections in this verse in the last two verses where he talks about the law being given to Moses. Your mind is meant to go back to, once again, the Old Testament where God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and the rules for living. There are many uses of the law to reveal their need for a Savior, to help them on the right path of living, to guide them, to protect them, and so forth. But the law is not complete. It, it points also to Jesus who comes, and, and the law still applies today in many ways, but Christ comes and brings, as John says, grace and truth. It's, it's meant to point us to Christ, who fulfills the law perfectly. I find the words, uh, no one has ever seen God, in verse 18 to be interesting. This reminds us of, that God is invincible. We, we know in John later that says that God is spirit. But when I, when I hear the expression, no one has ever seen God, I, I see Moses in the same verse, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, what about in Exodus where God spoke to Moses, as it says, as a man would speak to someone face to face? But even that is metaphorical language and the kind of language that would help us understand it better that God gave a slight manifestation of himself to Moses to be seen but certainly did not reveal himself fully. In this life as sinful humanity we cannot see God fully face to face but one day for all those who receive Jesus and believe in him in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see him face to face where there will be no more sorrow, sickness, sadness, Satan, or anything to make us feel despairing anymore. Reading a book on church history about various church history figures and was reading another book that connected these two things together. There was a guy from church history named uh, William Cooper and he was an extremely talented musician and poet and created many hymns for the church that really blessed the church. 
but even the best man is a man at best, and he was a man who himself was very plagued and struggled tremendously. He struggled a lot with depression and darkness and self-loathing. Well, in God's providence, as God often does when someone is really struggling, he uses someone else to help them. And William's help was a man named John Newton. Perhaps you've heard the name John Newton. He wrote a song called Amazing Grace. And as this book I was reading shared, uh, you might know this song, Amazing Grace, but perhaps you don't know why John Newton wrote it. He didn't write it because he was trying to blow up or become famous or build a platform or be seen for some other reason, but instead he, was, he wrote it for his, his friend William. William was having an episode in which he was just in a dark place. And nothing seemed to work. So John Newton tapped into the power of music to write a song to help him, to point him to this grace where he writes these lyrics. Through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. To us grace that brought us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. The Apostle John says in verse 16 that through Jesus we have received grace upon grace. Through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. Now his grace is available to anyone who will believe in him. And if you have believed in him, you are now called to be a witness on his behalf. 